either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Twas the week before Star Wars, <laughs> and we still have a good batch of movies to talk about. Some good stuff, and at least one stinker. So uh, we'll get to those. Welcome. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we're from MadWolf.com, and let's start off with the gang. Back, but the game has changed. As they return to rescue one of their own, the players will have to brave parts unknown, from arid deserts to snowy mountains, to escape the world's most dangerous game. It's Jumanji, the next level. Grandpa Eddie? Anthony? This is uh, uh, Martha and, and Bethany. Uh, this is Spencer's grandfather. Nice to meet you. Did you guys see Spencer? I think he went back in. We gotta go get him. Are you out of your mind? We haven't even picked our guys yet. Oh, he's just part falling. You hear something? Huh? Huh? What? Who are you? Oh my god. You're Spencer's grandfather. Are we in Florida? And you? My little walker. Did I die and turn into some kind of a small, muscular boy scout? Are we dead? Bethany? Rich? I'm the old fat dude. This can't be happening! My hip sure feels good now. Look at my thighs. Look at your thighs. Look at my thighs. Okay, we have some issues here. The game is busted! It was a game. I'm not here. Welcome to Jumanji! So two years ago, Jumanji, of course the Robin Williams franchise, uh, got rebooted to really fun effect. And I think we've seen here in the last year or so that if you're going to reboot an old franchise you got to have a new hook you do you know to want get people to come yeah uh, we've seen some bombs here lately but uh, that was a big hit two years ago because it was fresh you know right. they updated the game it was no longer a board game it was a video game and you had fun with this cast the rock and jack black and kevin hart and karen gillen basically channeling teenagers right as avatars mm -hmm. once they're in the uh, in the game so that was a lot of fun so now they're back and they got to come with a new hook so it's not just the same, more of the same thing. And they do that. And uh, actually, I think they go one better by making it an even better adventure. So, right. Yeah. So this time, it's about a year, I think just about a year after the events of the first film. And the four kids are in college, and they're trying to stay in touch. And they, over Christmas break, they want to get together. And they do that, except that Spencer, Alex Wolf, he doesn't show up. And uh, the rest of the kids hear the drums, those familiar drums, and uh, they figure quickly figure out that he's been sucked back into the game. So they decide they have to go back in after him. You know, they figure, we beat it once, we can do it again. So they head back in. Well, they also get joined by a couple of uh, unexpected players. The Dannys. Uh, the Dannys, <laughs> the, uh, the old guys. Danny DeVito, who plays <laughs> Spencer's grandpa, Eddie, and then Danny Glover, who is Grandpa Eddie's ex-best friend and business partner. So that's one of the biggest new hooks. They are, they are now joining the game. And not only are they joining the game, but they are Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart. Because that's one of the biggest changes here, is that the kids, when they all go back in the game, they think, well, we're just going to go back into the same avatars we were last time. Uh-uh. Except for Karen Gillan. She is the same character. She is still Martha. Uh, Martha gets to be Ruby Roundhouse again. I, <laughs> I love that name. name. <laughs> it is a great name, by the way. 
But the rest of them switch up. So now the most of the fun comes from Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart being the old guys. Right. Dwayne Johnson is Grandpa Eddie. Yeah, and Danny Ke- DeVito Kevin- is. Which <laughs> exactly. it makes you think of twins, right? Yeah. Back in the day when Danny yeah. DeVito played the twin brother of, yeah. of Schwarzenegger. And now he just gets to be the guy inside The Rock, which is hilarious. Yeah, so that's the main hook here. You get different avatars, different body swapping. And so that is as fun as you think it is. And it is funny. I don't think it's as solidly funny as the first one. Mm-hmm. But it is still funny. And, you know, every now and then they, they do take a little low-hanging fruit like old people are confused. Yeah. But they do have fun with suddenly their, their bodies aren't stiff right, and they right. can move in certain ways <laughs> and things like that. So, yes. But it's Jake Kasdan. Director Jake Kasdan is back. And if you remember the first one from two years ago, it had a lot of fun sort of riffing on the Breakfast Club yeah. cliches, I guess, of the, the jock and the nerd and those types of those types of uh, tropes from the high school movies. Well, this time, they go all in on the adventure. I mean, it homages everything from Indiana Jones to Kingsman hmm. to even there's a, there's a really cool bit that I thought uh, reminded me of Peter Jackson's King Kong mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they have to escape, the whole gang has to escape some angry mandrels, and they have to do an escape through these swinging, rickety bridges mm-hmm. that they might fall through, but they, they, they keep having to time it just so as one bridge hooks up with another. You know, it's a really cool set piece, and I think it illustrates how much better this adventure is than the first one. So that's why I think I lean just a little, just by a hair. I think I actually like this one better. And Aquafina is in this one as well. She's yeah. having a great year. Yeah, there are a few new characters too. Once a, because they are on a different mission, they mm-hmm. get a different mm-hmm. mission, so they run into different people. And Aquafina, that's who Spencer, when Spencer goes into the game, he thinks he's going to be Dr. Bravestone again, uh, you know, Dwayne Johnson. No, he gets to be Cat Burglar Ming Fleetfoot. Another great name. <laughs> that's a great name. And that's Aquafina. And you're right. She is wrapping up. She's had a great year. Yes, yes. I mean, she she could actually get some Oscar nomination uh, consideration. For I think the she farewell, is absolutely. for the farewell. Mm-hmm. Great, great, great film. One of my favorite, one of our favorite movies of the year. But she is an added uh, an added piece to the puzzle as well. And you get the fun, not just of the the body swapping avatars when the game begins, but they find a way to keep the avatars swapping as the game goes on, which is fun as well. Right. Which is so is yeah, it's it's it is PG thirteen. There's some GDs in there, <laughs> uh, some little bit of uh, cussing going on, but because Fridge, the athletic guy, he ends up this time in the body of Jack Black. <laughs> so he's <laughs> and not he's ha- mad. He's mad because he can't do a burpee. You know, he tries <laughs> to do a burpee and that ain't happening. So you get a little bit of that. But otherwise, I think for PG-13 on up, it's it's going to be, I think it's going to be a hit. And you know how bad I am at predicting this. You are. I'm you're terrible. Bad. But I, I think that you're right. It's just, it's a really fun adventure. It's got, I mean, and it's, it continues to be such a likable cast. I mean, who doesn't like Kevin Hart, Jack Black, and, and Dwayne Johnson? I mean, I think even if you don't like all three, you have to really like one of them. They're just incredibly likable yeah, human beings. They really are, and they have great chemistry together. And Karen Gillan as well, and we've yeah. seen her in a lot more roles lately. But uh, the one thing it's missing, I looked at the uh, the writers, and the two writers that were on the writing team last time, they were two guys that had a hand in writing the last two Spider-Man, uh, oh. Spider-Man installments. And so... When the movie goes for the, the feels mm-hmm. and the life lessons, mm-hmm. it's not as smooth as it was before. Right. And I think that's got to be why. I really think so because they're good at that. Oh, they are. I think that's the common denominator between you look at the Spider Man films with Tom Holland, mm-hmm. how well they weave in those types yeah. of life lessons. So I think 
them missing from the writing team is probably the reason. But uh, other than that, I thought it was a solid family fun film for the holidays. So I was digging the new, we were digging the new Jumanji. Will you say enough family fun? How about a horror film for the holidays? Well, here you go. A group of female students are stalked by a stranger during their Christmas break. That is until the young sorority pledges discover that the killer is part of an underground college conspiracy. It's Black Christmas. It is our last day of our last fall semester of college ever. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell. We shouldn't have let her go back by herself. She's fine. Come on, live a little. Yeah, I'm going to go full nerd here for a second. Full nerd out alert. Should That's we right. have a sounder, some sort of <laughs> some sort of alert? Go ahead. <laughs> nerd alert. <laughs> so Black Christmas, of course, is a reboot of the 1974 classic, which a lot of people consider to be the very first yeah. slasher film. That was uh, Margot Kidder yep. and Olivia Hussey yep. as well in the cast. But you're right. A lot of people point to that as, if not... The first. It's certainly in the team picture. Right. And Bob Clark directed it. <laughs> Which we got to mention, especially this time of the year. If you're going to bring up Bob Clark, what else did he do? Well, here's the thing. Bob Clark's Black Christmas is part of our family holiday rotation. Mm -hmm. Other people might watch his other holiday Christmas film, A Christmas Story. little thing called A Christmas Real, Story. Thing, yeah. Fragile. Shoot your eye out, right. kid. <laughs> uh, and I've always found it hilarious that of the few films he ever made, he made those two movies. Right. I love that. Right. And, uh, and of course, then Black Christmas was remade in 2006 as part of kind of that torture porn, mm -hmm. unwatchably bad. And it just really got forgotten quickly. It did. Yeah, that one did. In fact, I had totally, For good I had totally forgotten about it when you brought it up, there talking about this of, movie. of unofficial sequels and spinoffs. I mean, it's actually, you'd be surprised at how many Black Christmas riffs there are uh but this is a completely fresh take and it's a pg-13 take yes so it's a i guess it's one you can take your high school kids to i don't know and, um, and it's a reboot by a female director and female writers right so, sophia to co-writes and directs she co-writes with april wolf and what the film no relation does <laughs> <laughs> is creates a feminist, unabashedly feminist horror film. Right. You're going to find there are some feminist horror films out there. Knives and Skin, which we'll talk about in a minute. Raw. Um, I mean, there are a lot, the actually. Woman. The Woman. That's one maybe my favorite feminist horror film. But this one is, what. what is interesting about this one is that it's not an art house movie. It is a straightforward, formulaic, PG-13 horror flick. You know, popcorn-munching horror flick. Yeah, high, and school, even though, high school horror. Even though it's not very good, I find something really comforting in knowing that feminism has entered the mainstream <laughs> of horror. I love that. Because if you think about how many not very good, passable, popcorn-munching, misogynist horror films there are in sure. history, yeah. I literally can't count that high. So it's, um, it's not a great movie, but there's something sort of cathartic about this. Mm -hmm. 
I can understand that. But let's talk about what really brings the film down, like like the jump it makes that was pretty unexpected. I think we called it uh, on social, we called it a unexpected fruitcake of ridiculousness. Yes, I think that's a good. <laughs> so it's, it's Imogene Poots is the is the main character, uh, Riley. It's her senior year in college, uh, a small liberal arts college, and sh- she's ah. in a sorority. And she, uh, we know that she's the hero of the film because she has the farthest to go, right? right? She has the most to gain Mm -hmm. and lose. There are murderers afoot. A lot of sorority girls are dying, which is not uncommon in a horror film. And then um, she and one of her best friends, they get in a car. They leave the sorority house. The best friend is at the wheel and is going to drive to, naturally, the police station because that's... For anybody who's unaware, what you should do if you leave a bunch of dead people and murderers in your sorority house and you get into the car and you drive away, please drive to the police station. Please do that. And at that point, Imogene Boots throws out the most ridiculous supernatural theory. And then I'll, I'm going to give I'm going to give the driver credit. She looked at her like, what the hell are you saying right now? And and that's really where the movie loses me completely. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my and then and then we're gonna have to go with that theory. That theory's gonna have to actually reminds be... me of that commercial where the the it's a takeoff on horror movies where the girl says, Can't we just go hide behind those chainsaws? Right. <laughs> it's just the dumbest thing. And the thing is, I mean the movie was much too formulaic to begin with. There's no blood. There's zero blood. There's a lot of jump scares. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of it makes very much sense. I think the performances are decent and it and it does have some very insightful, clever female gaze sociological comments that it's making that I appreciated. Mm-hmm. And it's not a stupid film. The dialogue is sound. It's just that it's the plot is, for the first two-thirds of the movie, formulaic, and for the, the final act, stupid. So that's a lot to overcome. It is. it is. So I get your point, though. You appreciate that, look, there can be crappy misogynist horror movies, and there are plenty of them, so why can't there be, there be a crappy feminist horror yeah, movie? Yeah, absolutely. Join the I party. Mean, there, are, there are moments to appreciate in this movie. It's just not very good. Yeah, because that that's when you feel like, yeah, maybe it is getting more mainstream. Exactly. We can be crappy, too. Right. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, not a fun Black Christmas. Next up, one that's getting uh, a lot of talk right now. American security guard Richard Jewell saves thousands of lives from an exploding bomb at the 1996 Olympics, but is vilified by journalists and the press who falsely report that he was a terrorist. Latest from director Clint Eastwood, Richard Jewell. Richard, you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. always look at the guy who found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body. Jewel fits the profile of the lone bomber. A frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero. We're running it. Stop trying to be their best friend. I was raised to respect authority. Authority's looking to eat you alive. Clint Eastwood likes movies where there's a man at the center who's a hero that people don't expect, accept as a hero. Yeah, he's apparently been trying to make this movie for years, and that checks out because that does seem to be his favorite genre right now. And the fact that he's putting out a movie right now that vilifies the FBI and the fake news press, you could read a political statement into that. I mean, if you wanted to. Yeah. You probably remember, it was not that long ago, uh, 96, well, not that long ago to me, I guess it was. <laughs> But, the, yeah, the Atlanta Olympics, a bomb went off in Centennial Park, and he was a security guard 
who spotted the bomb first and then was helping to clear the scene out when it went off. And so first he was hailed as a hero, and then it wasn't long before he w- it was leaked that he was the prime suspect. And so for a few months, his life was turned upside down as he was treated as pretty much a, a terrorist before they finally admitted they had no case. And then, actually, it was about six years later that the actual bomber confessed, Eric Rudolph, for those who may remember. Anyway, so there's a compelling story there. There's no doubt about that. There's a compelling story about how this guy was labeled a terrorist wrongly and what it did to his life. And at the heart of it is some good storytelling. First of all, you've got Paul Walter Hauser. I want to get that name right. If you don't know his name, you've probably seen him in the last few years doing some really good support Black work. Black Klansman and I, Tanya. He's, you know what? He's amazing in both of those movies. And what great cast to, to stand out. Yeah. That, yeah, he's he's really solid. He was that the stupid hitman in I, Tanya, and he was fantastic. And so now he is the the lead here, Richard Jewell, and he's he is great. He really is, and some with a with a layered and sometimes touching performance. Mm-hmm. So when you've got him at the center of it, and then how this tragedy, we'll call it, um, affects the relationship with his mother, who's the th- amazing always Kathy Bates, Kathy Bates, and his lawyer, who was. A, a longtime friend before he became his lawyer, and that's Sam Rockwell, another veteran who who improves pretty much everything that he's in. Exactly. So those three form the core of this movie, and if you just stopped right there, it's really well done. The writer is Billy Ray, who has done some some fine scripts, and in that triumvirate, I guess you'd call it, very well well mm-hmm. told. The mm-hmm. problem is what's going on around that core, because the film just treats its villains, the FBI, and the press just paints them much, much too broadly. I mean, Olivia Wilde is the Atlanta Journal reporter Kathy Scruggs, a real real person who's unfortunately now deceased, as is Richard Jewell. You may have been reading in the headlines, uh, there's a lot of talk about how she, her character is treated. In f- the, the main reason that it, the film is being threatened with uh, legal action is because it just pretty much comes out and says she traded sexual favors for information from an FBI agent played by John Hamm. So I'll tell you, Olivia Wilde's char- character, this Kathy, she's just so broadly drawn that she might as well be twirling her mustache and and laughing maniacally every time she comes in the room. Right, right, right. And John Hamm doesn't get off too much better. No. Um, and it, they're just so, so... The zeal with which they want to paint these two institutions as villains just really, really hampers the film. And unfortunately, so John Hamm's character is a compilation of people. He's not one human being. Whereas Olivia Wilde's character, that's a real person. Yeah. And and Eastwood is using these two individual characters to, to as representatives of everything that's wrong with the government, everything that's wrong with the press. But in the one case of the press, he's pinning all of that ugly on one human being who's real and whose family has to watch this and say, you know, my friend, my wife, my daughter, they, she never t- traded sexual favors for anything. And one of the things I think that's particularly unfortunate is that it was the 90s. It's a female journalist in the South in the 90s. How difficult her job had to have been in the first place. I'm not trying to, you know, excuse the fact that she has something to do with the upending of Richard Jewell's life unfairly. That's too bad. But it's it's really unfortunate that this person, this human being, is treated so one-dimensionally in this film. That's true. I was surprised they actually used her real name. And and I'm with you. It's not that the the FBI and the press 
weren't at fault here. They definitely were. But the way it's treated in the movie just it lessens the effect. I right. mean, um, the the lawyer, Sam Rockwell's character, early on, you, you see it once and then you see it a few more times. There's a sticker, a bumper sticker pretty much stuck on his office wall that says, I fear the government more than I fear terrorism. And that thing might as well be glowing like a neon right, sign. Right, right. He wants us to see that so much. And like, OK, if you're telling us that's how this character feels, It'd be much better if you just have it that come out in his performance in sure. maybe a couple things he says, because that's to me, that's not character development. No. It's just waving your hands. Look, yeah. this is what I'm trying to say here. And it just it lessens the, the whole effect. And for me, later on in, in the movie, especially for Olivia Wilde's character, when she starts to suspect that, oh, maybe he didn't do it. And the, the single tear she might shed to me, meant nothing. Right. I felt nothing about it because you've given her no sort of layers at all. No. She's just a villain, a mm-hmm. straight-up villain. So I thought, other than that, it, it seems funny. It, we're being very, very negative, but there is a lot of good here. There yeah. really is. Yeah. I really appreciated the story and how it's centered on Jewel himself with his family, his mother, and his lawyer because they are three really good actors in three good roles telling, again, a very compelling story that deserves to be told. Yeah. It really does. But man, the the the, the zeal to uh, broadly paint the the villains here really drags the film down. Other than that, a <laughs> <laughs> couple of acting powerhouses go face to face next behind Vatican walls. The conservative Pope Benedict and the liberal future Pope Francis must find common ground to forge a new path for the Catholic Church. It is the two popes. Confidential church documents were allegedly leaked to the press. Alleging corruption and misconduct among the clergy. I hope this business is not too distressing. Does a shepherd run away with the wolves up here? We are moving in directions I can no longer condone. I've struggled to do what must be done, but I've lost. Hopes can't resign. If you do this, you will damage the papacy forever. I can no longer sit on the chair of St. Peter. You're mistaken. You are serious. I cannot play this role anymore. There's a saying, God always corrects one pop by presenting the world with another pop. I shouldn't. I'd like to see my correction. I'm going to just start by saying how (laughs) deeply hilarious I think it was that they cast Hannibal Lecter to play Pope Benedict. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, and I'll just go right off of that and say that Jonathan Price (laughs) really looks like Pope Francis. He does. He really does. He does. You know, Jonathan Price is one of the more, uh, I think, underappreciated actors working today. He's been in everything. He's in everything. You know, and he's definitely a that guy. Yeah, he is. Because people don't know his name. Right. But But he's he's fantastic. He he played uh, Glenn Close's husband in The Wife last year. Oh, if you go... Uh, all the way back, he was the mark that Al Pacino gets in Glengarry Glen Ross. That's right. Uh, That's but, right. I mean, he's just been. He, yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. he must make 100 movies a year. He's so reliable all the time. And it's really great to finally see him in something where he's the lead. And he, and God, he shines. He's so, so good uh, in this role. And then the relationship that the two popes develop in this fictional sort of fantasy of what went on behind stained glass Mm -hmm. as they decided that Pope Benedict was going to leave, going to... Which is unheard of. uh, It had not happened in over 600 years. So, yes, unheard of. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he just kind of decided... 
I'm going. Yep. And then Pope Francis spends most of the film aghast that that's really what he's thinking of doing Mm -hmm. and trying desperately to convince him not to do it, not because he thinks he makes a good pope. He does not. Right. As a matter of fact, he wants to retire because he can't, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't believe in where the church is, is going. Oh, yeah. We know now the kind of pope that Pope Francis has been, and he was so, he's so ideologically polar right. from Pope Benedict. If, and, and, you know, if you're not familiar with this, and there's a great reason for you not to be familiar with this, by the time this happened, Pope Benedict was taking the Catholic Church into a far more, in a far more conservative direction. I mean, it was... The way it had gone on for many, many years with uh, with Pope John Paul, he had decided that we'd gotten too liberal, mm-hmm. and he was going to make a a sharp right turn. Mm-hmm. But it was also um, during a time. It's hard to remember now a time when the Catholic Church wasn't completely mired in scandal. Right. But it was getting really, really, really bad right then. And he and his actually his assistant, his assistant was jailed, went to prison. So he was himself being pulled into that, and it was making things even harder for the Catholic Church. And so that's really. The, but it's interesting. The film doesn't get much into that. It doesn't dig deep into the scandals. It talks a little bit about it as the two men discuss their ideology, but it doesn't really dig in. And it mainly stays a little bit on the surface there, but you get to see Francis, and he's a, a, he's a, a far more liberal oh, yeah. thinking. And just to hear the two, and the, obviously two great actors, and the dialogue that they're given, which is um, feels very authentic for people who would have focused their entire lives on Christ's teachings. It's a fascinating, really well-delivered, and really gorgeously filmed part of the movie. But the movie flashes back to Francis's youth, because there is some controversy and some political upheaval in his background, Mm -hmm. and that's really where it loses its footing. It can't match the intimacy or the the visual flair or the storytelling of the present day. And maybe this is one we should throw out your Catholic bona fides of 12 years of Catholic school. And of course, our, our son was raised Catholic, and I defer to you on all things Catholic. Yeah. So um, you have a, a very strong perspective to come to this film. I do. Actually, when we knew that this was screening, it was screening at the same time as a different film, and it was just clear who was going to which. I was like, you you know, no offense to anybody, because it's not just that I went to 12 years of Catholic school. My dad worked for the Catholic Church. Right. All my dad's friends were priests. All my dad's <laughs> bosses were priests. Yes, so you were the natural choice to review this, and you're, I think your perspective, like a lot of people who grew up maybe similar backgrounds, uh, might have the same sort of feelings. You're, you're going to come to it with different perspective than just a lay person, a Catholic right. lay person. Yeah, and I, and I did appreciate, you know, I appreciated the way the film recognizes what the Pope means to people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what a lightning rod that position can be. And also it seems to really understand where globally the church was and how Catholics were feeling about everything we were learning about what our church had allowed to happen for such a long time. But one of the things that I, where I think the, for me, the film's major failing is that it's simply too forgiving a movie. It talks a lot about forgiveness and about forgiving sinners and about forgiving the clergy. And I'm not sure a lot of us are quite ready to forgive Pope Benedict for all of those things as quickly and effortlessly as the film does. So that's, 
a little bit, I think, of an unfortunate thing because the because the truth is these two performances, these two men, it's almost they're almost criminally charming. And we should say the director is Fernando Morellis, mm. who did the Constant Gardener. And the writer is Anthony McCardin, who has done some good work. He did uh, Darkest Hour. Mm. Uh, did the Bohemian Rhapsody, too, at least one of the writers there, which eh, I know people love that movie, but uh, we didn't. But uh, the two popes, for nothing else, I mean, for the performances, yeah. worth checking yeah. out. Got a documentary next centering on the controversial political career of Amelda Marcos, former first lady of the Philippines, called the Kingmaker. When I became first lady, it became demanding for me. I have to dress up and make myself more beautiful because the poor always looks for a star in the dark of the night. I don't have an answer for why we allow Imelda to even open her mouth. People forget the mistakes of the past are condemned to repeat them. Perception is real, and the truth is not. Toward the end of the year, uh, especially as sort of, you know, awards seasons ramp, ramp up, we get kind of deluged with really good films to watch, a lot of them incredibly depressing. Right, because we have, as members of the Columbus Film Critics Association, we have our awards. Mm -hmm. And so any voting body gets a lot of these for-your-consideration screeners. And this was one that we just had sitting there on the table for weeks of all the depressing films that we've seen, this might not stand out as being the... This one wrecked me. I mean, I was so upset by this movie. I was so... I still am. I am so bothered by this movie uh, and what it represents. And it's Lauren Greenfield, the documentarian who did The Queen of Versailles a few years back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who has a great knack for capturing, in a sympathetic light, the absurdity of the phenomenally wealthy. Mm -hmm. And in this one, I'm not sure how sympathetic it winds up being, but it certainly is mired in the absurd wealth of the Marcos family. And what is horrible about this, it's actually it, her access is incredibly intimate. Yeah. It's amazing what she has access to as a, as a documentarian. You yes. think they might be a little bit more uh, guarded. I don't think they care. No, they don't seem to care. Because in the end, what happens is it just takes you backstage as the Marcos family, if you were not aware of this, and I was not entirely aware of this, as they basically weasel their way back to the top of the political ladder in the Philippines, regardless of the the destruction and looting and criminal behavior and death and carnage that they were responsible for, for through the 60s through the 80s. And it's... um. It's a great movie, and it is just shattering. Well, what it does, especially when paired with the election results out of Great Britain yeah. this week, it just reminds you that we're in a time where it sure seems like the bullies are winning. Yeah, it does. And that just depresses you. Yeah, it does. It really does. But other than that, it's, it's, it's a, a well-done movie. It is. If, uh, if you have the stomach for it, uh, The Kingmaker. And also another one in limited release this week, faced with the responsibility to take care of her addict veteran father, headstrong teen Mickey Peck keeps her household afloat in Mickey and the Bear. This is too much for a kid. Yeah, well, he's my dad. Love ya! It's only a matter of time before she gets as sick of it as you are. Shut up about things you don't understand. This isn't so bad. Something to say, come out and say it. Where's my money? Where's my money? 
is a, just a, a little indie gem, coming-of-age story from writer-director Annabelle Atanasio. It is some brilliant performances, uh, really intimate, very surprising, and just a beautifully written, acted, and, and captured film. Yeah, probably the most mainstream face in the cast is James Badge Dale, who pops up a lot. And other than that, I had not heard of any anybody else in the cast. But you're right, it's all solid work. Oh, it is. It's it's And it's one of those films where, I mean, James Badge Dale, he's been knocking around for a long time, and this is easily his most impressive performance. But everybody else, including the, the writer-director, you just think to yourself, can't wait. I can't wait to see where they go with this. I can't wait to see what they do next. Yeah, exactly right. So it's a small film, again, limited release, but if you find it in the area, might be worth checking out. It's worth it. And with that, let's head to the lobby. It's loaded. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. So much stuff in the lobby this week and some good stuff. Let's start with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm sure you you've heard of it. I'm sure you've heard of it. One of our favorites of the year. Absolutely. I mean, we are we are making our list for the end of the year, checking it twice. Well, no, we're checking about 10 times. <laughs> and so we'll have it out soon. But we can, I can assure you that that is going to be on it. Uh, it Chapter 2, we liked it, liked it fine, didn't love it. No, it's it's a little bit of a disappointment. We, we talked about how it got, was an uphill climb because mm-hmm. you, you lose most of the children. Who cares what happens to adults? Still a great cast, though. Just uh, not nearly as good and not nearly worth the runtime. Hustlers comes out on DVD this week. This one was really good. I enjoyed it. In fact, it, it has a chance to crack our top 25 of the year. I don't know. But uh, the main thing is I think most people now are betting on J-Lo to get a Best Supporting Actress nomination for this. Yeah. And you she's know, great. She is. And this is a movie that, that when I first start, started seeing the trailers for it, I thought, pass. Mm-hmm. And boy, was I wrong. It's yeah. just fascinating. It's well told. She's great. She is great. And it's enjoyable. That's out this week on DVD. As well as Monos. This is another one. It's probably going to make our best of the year. A, uh, a smaller film might have slipped through the cracks. It looks fantastic. It tells a very compelling story of... Should we say child, like child warriors? Yeah. They're, they're guarding a hostage and a conscripted cow. Yeah. Uh, for some sort of group, for some sort of ambiguous mission. And then something happens that sets a few things in motion, and it's it's very compelling. Oh, my God, it is. It's absolutely fascinating. It's riveting stuff, and it's just gorgeously filmed. Exactly. That's called Monos. Also a documentary out, Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice. I enjoyed this. If you are not familiar with how great of a career Linda Ronstadt had, I mean, she was basically Taylor Swift of the 70s. Right. She was everywhere. And this one, it is. It's The Sound of My Voice is what it's called, which is sort of ironic because you may have heard that she can't sing anymore due to MS. But this story, her story is told in her speaking voice, and that's the only way these directors could get her to agree to the project. So, on one hand, you're not going to hear a bunch of salacious details about affairs and drug use. Mm -hmm. You're not going to hear that. But you are going to hear firsthand from what it was like to be a queen in a king's game right. in 70s rock music or 70s music and with a lot of great archive stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very much worth checking out, especially if you're a Linda Ronstadt fan. It's a must, but even just a music fan. Yeah. But it's a well-told story. Knives and Skin, you just mentioned it a few minutes That's ago, right. and this comes out uh, this week as well. Yeah, this is something that is uh, available VOD this week, and it's just amazing. It's a really singular, incredible, bizarre vision and, and uh, a 
uh, one of my fa- favorites from the year. Yeah, it's from Ohio filmmaker Jennifer Reeder. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this, what, last week or yep. a couple of weeks last ago? Week. On the screening room. Definitely one to check out. As is Daniel Isn't Real, which I think we just talked about last week. We did. It's just another fun horror movie. It's a twist on uh, on something that you may think you're familiar with, but they take it in new directions. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so that leaves us to next week. Kind of a big week. A little bit. Uh, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker comes out, and we see it in just a few days. Yes, we, we do. We see it, I think, maybe two days early. And, you know, I think so, the biggest surprise to me is that anything else is coming out. I know. That's crazy. Know. Don't it's, you realize it's the last Star Wars? Exactly. And it's not just small films. No, that, that it's help, big movies. That, help to get, that hope to get a different audience. You've got Cats. Mm-hmm. Finally, making mm-hmm. it to the big screen. Uh, Bombshell yeah. comes out. And also the, the, latest, the latest from Terrence Malick, A Hidden Life. So we were talking about this at lunch the other day. And I thought maybe it's because with Christmas landing on a Wednesday, they're thinking that it's really just going to be blended into one long weekend. That could be. Maybe so. And so many people right now have already bought their Star Wars yeah. tickets. Yeah. Uh, there's hopefully a lot to go around. We shall see. But that's all next week. going to be a big, big week. But this week, let us know what you thought about any of these movies or stuff in the lobby. Because, yeah, boy, that's loaded as well. Uh, plenty to chew on. And we can always... Keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find us at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it is Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our other horror movie-only podcasts called Fright Club. That's all right there at madwolf.com. Always appreciate you stopping by. And if you would just take a second to subscribe, rate, and review, we would appreciate it. Always, always. So until next week, she's Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.